Good morning, everybody. How are we? We good? Well, it is good to be with you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2. It's on uh, page 785 in the Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. We are in part 5 of our series through the book of Habakkuk called The Ever-Present King. I am uh, very excited to be with you this morning. Pastor Lance is away on the women's retreat. I don't have a joke to go along with that, but I did want to point it out. So, uh, that's that. But, uh, he'll be back, uh, he'll be back ne- with, with us next weekend. Uh, this message I have entitled, The Futility of Evil. Uh, which if that doesn't sound like a good time, I mean, I don't know what does, but, what I have for you this morning is a lengthy introduction followed by a short sermon. So we have a long introduction. It's going to take us a little while to get to the text, and then it's a short sermon uh, from there. So just to recap what's going on in the book of Habakkuk, because it's kind of a strange story, and in case you're new or you haven't been around the last couple of weeks, or you could just use a refresher, the book of Habakkuk begins with this prophet railing against God because of the wickedness that he sees in Israel. He's saying, God, our leaders are corrupt, God, there's all sorts of false worship going on. God, we are not being who you have called us to be. We need you to get involved and fix it. And God says back to Habakkuk, and obviously I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, well, Habakkuk, now that you mention it, I actually do have a little plan for you, and that is that uh, I'm raising up the Babylonians to come in and conquer all of you. To which Habakkuk says, outstanding, looking forward to it. No, that's obviously not what he says at all. He says, okay, God, wait a second. There are two problems with that. Number one, I'm not really down with the whole getting conquered and laid to waste thing. Like, not a good day for that. Number two, the Babylonians are even more wicked than we are. So if the issue is wickedness, like, this does not help. Like, how on earth, that doesn't make any sense that you're bringing in this foreign power that is more wicked than we are to conquer us. That's just God. You, you need to explain yourself. To be Habakkuk says, God, you owe me an explanation. God, this doesn't seem fair. And at the beginning of Habakkuk chapter 2, Habakkuk demands an explanation. He says, God, I'm going to wait until you respond to me. And then God begins to speak. And we looked at this this last week. And God said to Habakkuk, he said, I need you to write this down. He said, I need you to write this down because I'm about to give you a prophecy. And this prophecy is for all Israel. And this prophecy is one that is not going to be entirely fulfilled in your lifetime. So I need you to write this down so that in the dark days to come, my people can know that that time of darkness will come to an end. And I need you to write this down because when it comes to an end, I need my people to be able to look back and see my faithfulness, that I am a God who keeps His promises. And then He begins to speak. And what we're going to see in our passage today is this prophecy is a pretty thorough condemnation of Babylon and its wickedness. And it's a promise of their impending demise. It's as if God was saying to Habakkuk, he's saying, listen, I know. I see the evil of the Babylonian people. I know. Just because I am bringing them in and I am using them to discipline Israel, it does not mean I approve of them. It does not mean I endorse them. And this is such a kind of subtle point in the passage, but it's an important one for us to understand. In fact, Pastor Lance and I this week, as we were talking about this passage, he brought this up as what he thought was a very significant idea, and I agree. Is that this passage could just help us see the reality 
that just because a person has been raised up to a position of power, that does not mean God endorses or approves of them. That, that we would say things like, we tend to say things like, well, this leader or this person, God has put them in their position of power. And on some level, that's true. God is sovereign and people that are in power, on some level, God is the one who places people in power. But we need to be very careful to avoid equating that with some sort of statement about God's approval of them. A person being in power does not mean that God necessarily endorses their action. A person being in power does not mean that God necessarily approves of their character. In fact, an incompetent or immoral leader can be a sign of God's judgment. There is an important and profound difference between the statement, this is a leader that has been placed in their position by God, and the statement, this is a godly leader who God endorses. Now, sometimes both are true, but often they are not. And we need to be very careful before we make the argument that a person's position of power is a sign of God's approval. Because remember, God used Babylon. Like that, that doesn't have that, that word, that, 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 that people group Babylon doesn't have the same emotional force for us today. But in the ancient world, for the Jewish people, I mean, Babylon is the personification of evil. And God used Babylon, placed them in leadership over Israel to discipline Israel. So God is willing to use wicked leaders to discipline his people. But we can also trust that when we see wicked leadership, that God sees it as well. And when we find ourselves under wicked or immoral leadership, and we say, God, don't you see what is going on? God says, I see it. And I'm not turning a blind eye to it. And I don't approve of it. That's exactly what was going on in the book of Habakkuk. And as a broader point... I hope that whatever you think of the leaders in your life, whether they're leaders at work, whether they're leaders at church, whether they're our governmental leaders, whatever you think about them, and I'm not here to tell you what to think about them, I hope that you pray for them. I hope that you pray for them as 1 Timothy chapter 2 encourages us to do. I always think it's so funny that, that, that people will ask me about leaders that I've maybe expressed some concern with, and they'll say, do you pray for them? Like, as if I wouldn't. I'm like, of course I pray for them. They're leaders. <laughs> they need prayer right? I hope you pray for our leaders. I hope you pray for our leaders. And I hope that we can all understand that there is something, there is a pressure and responsibility that comes with high level leadership that those of us who have not stood in those shoes cannot possibly fully appreciate. That there is a, there is a weight that comes with that mantle of leadership that in my opinion is worthy of our respect. Now, with that being said, that does not mean leaders are immune from criticism. That does not mean there is not a place, especially for people of faith, to prophetically rise up and say, this is not right, this is unjust. It does not mean that leaders get a free reign to do whatever they want. And it certainly does not mean that God turns a blind eye to their misdeeds. And that is essentially what God is communicating to Habakkuk in the passage we're looking at today. He's saying, listen, yes, the Babylonians are coming. Yes, there are dark days in front of you. Uh, but just because they're conquering Israel does not mean I approve of them. It does not mean I approve of them. In fact, they have set themselves on a path to destruction, and that destruction is assured. And what we're going to do is when we get to the passage, we're going to look at some of the ways that Babylon has set itself up for destruction. And in doing that, we're going to gain some insight into the way that God made the world to work. And we're going to see some important application points for ourselves. 
But what I want to do is I want to use the disobedience and rebellion of Babylon to help us understand a very simple point about obedience to the commands of God, and it's this. And it's the fill in the blank on your bulletin. Obedience is its own reward. Obedience is its own reward. What do I mean by that? I mean that the reason why God has given us his commands in the scriptures, God has given us his commands in the scriptures because he is the creator and sustainer of all life. He knows how life works best. So in his kindness and his mercy towards us, he has given us his commands because he knows how life works best for us and he wants that for us. The commands of God are not arbitrary or random. They're not needlessly restrictive or self-serving. They're not just God saying, here's some random stuff for you to do because I'm God and you're not. They're God's way of directing us towards life as he intended it. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture is Psalm 1611, which says this. It says, you've made known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I love that verse. What does it tell us? It says that God has made known to us the path of life. God has shown us life as he intended it. And as we walk that path and we seek to walk in his ways and we seek to understand his heart, that leads us closer to his presence. And in his presence, there is fullness of joy. God gives us his commands so that we might walk in his ways experiencing Life as he intended, and in that, there is fullness of joy. So when I say that obedience is, re- is its own reward, I, what I mean is that the fruit of our obedience is life as God intended it. The fruit of our obedience is life as, is life as God intended it. Let me give you some examples. In the scriptures again and again and again, we are called to be generous people. We're called to be generous people, and that is a high value here at Bridgeway. We believe that God has been exceedingly generous with us, So because God has been generous, we want to live with an open hand, being generous to the world, anxious to use our resources for the good of others. And I want to ask you, what is the reward for generosity? Because I believe there are two significant rewards for generosity. The first reward when you and I are generous is our stuff does not own us. If you are a generous person, that will free you from the prison of being owned by that which you possess. That is an extraordinary reward for generosity. Number two, the reward for generosity is you and I, we get the blessing of seeing that which God has entrusted to us used to be a blessing for others. Whether it's as simple as buying lunch for a friend or investing our money in God's work in the local church and seeing the ministry that happens, or investing the money in different faith-based organizations or community organizations and seeing the good that happens, seeing the people that are blessed, that's a reward for generosity. We get the reward of seeing our resources used for good. It's phenomenal. And see, too often, too many times early in my life, I heard generosity taught in church kind of like this, where we never said it this bluntly, but this was essentially the message. you got to give, you got to be generous, because then God will give you more. Don't you think that kind of misses the point? Like, don't you think that kind of misses the point? Like, if, like, listen, it's said, the scriptures talk about this idea that as we are generous, that God will provide for us and that there is provision for us as we are generous. But the point of generosity, like if we're giving to get more, like that's not even generosity. Like we've missed the point, 
right? We are still shackled to our own selfish desires where, where in reality, true generosity breaks us free. True generosity breaks us free. I'll give you another example. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, for those of us who are married, or for those of us, it's something to keep in mind for single people to hope to be married. Ephesians chapter 5, 21 says to those of us who are married that we are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That as an act of worship to Christ, we are called to submit to our spouses. What is the fruit of mutual submission in marriage? Listen, I get it. Marriage is complex. There is no silver bullet. But the fruit of submission in marriage is so many of the things that get into our relationships and gunk them up. So many of those things are kept at bay. When mutual submission is practiced, selfishness is kept at bay. Pride is kept at bay. Just kind of the pettiness that that just, again, gets into, can you tell I'm married? That just gets into marriages and sort of does stuff, right? Like autobiographical, right? When I'm not practicing mutual submission, that's when that stuff comes in. But when I am, that's when that stuff is kept at bay. The fruit of obedience is the reward for obedience. Obedience is its own reward. And I could go on and on with so many different examples because obedience is its own reward because obedience creates the sort of life that God intended for us. See, we misunderstand the point of obedience when we expect obedience to lead to some sort of external reward. In fact, when we do that, we often end up frustrated because that is simply not the way the world works. Another example. Suppose you're in the job market, you're looking for a job, and you interview for a job and you don't get it. And you go to God and you say, God, come on, I'm going to church every Sunday, I'm in the Word daily, I'm reading, reading the Bible all the time, why didn't I get the job? And I can imagine God saying, I'm not sure how those two things are related. Like, was the point of the church and the Bible reading for me to give you a job? Because if it is, you've kind of missed the point. <laughs> right? What's the reward for regular church attendance? What's the reward for carving out time in our day to be in God's Word? The, the reward is the connection with God's presence. The, the reward is that as we sit under the Word of God, we're formed by the Word of God. The reward is we have a place to gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ and be in community and be encouraged and sing songs and again, hear teaching and give God the worship that is due. That is the reward. If we're looking for something external, like we've kind of missed it, haven't we? We've missed it. And here's, here's the really dark part about all of this. Here's the really dark part about all of this. When we expect external rewards for our obedience, first of all, we cheapen obedience itself. Second of all, and we would never say this, but this is exactly what we do. Second of all, what we're saying is when we are obedient to who God has called us to be for some external reward, what we're trying to do is we're trying to put God in our debt. We're trying to make it look like God owes us something. We're saying, God, I'm doing X, Y, and Z for you, so now I need you to do this for me. And God's like, yeah, that is definitely not how it works. I am God. You are not. I don't owe you anything. <laughs> I have given you more than you could ever hope to deserve. I, I have shown you my ways and, sh- and, and, and shown you that obedience is its own reward. I am not in your debt. I've said this before. I will say it again. If you want a miserable life, start acting like God owes you something. 
Like it's guaranteed it'll work, right? Act like God owes you something because he doesn't, because he doesn't. And when we believe he does, when we believe he does, we're missing the point of obedience. Obedience is its own reward. It draws us closer to the heart of God. It produces the life that God desires to give us. It saves us from the non-arbitrary natural consequences of sin. What do I mean by that? We're going to see this when we get into the text. That the consequences of sin are not random. That the consequences of sin come out of the behaviors themselves. They are the natural result of these behaviors, and that is why God wants to steer us clear from them. We misunderstand the beauty of God's invitation to obedience if we expect it to lead to some sort of an external reward. The reward for obedience is built into the practices themselves. The, the reward for forgiving others is the fruit of forgiveness. The reward for putting away anger is the fruit of not being controlled by your anger. Why is this so? Because God is the author and creator of all things, and he knows how life works and wants to point us that direction. If we obey expecting some sort of spirit, spiritual extra credit, we have missed the point completely. And not only that, we have deprived ourselves of the true joy of obedience. We have deprived ourselves of the true joy of obedience. It would be difficult to overstate the importance of that truth. So just to be clear, what am I not saying? I am not saying that obedience will make your life pain-free. That is absolutely false. There, there are challenges in this. But what I am saying is obedience saves us from self-inflicted wounds. It's like life is hard enough as it is. Right? Life is hard enough as it is. And I am saying that God created a world where obedience is its own reward. Where being slow to speak and quick to listen is more likely than not to create relational harmony. Where generosity helps us appreciate God's abundance. Where regularly gathering with God's people and sitting under the teaching of the word of God forms us into people who are put together and formed by his spirit and allows us to experience community. Obedience is its own reward. And you might be saying, okay, I get it. You've said that phrase about 87 times so far. What does that have to do with Habakkuk and the Babylonians and everything we've been talking about in this series? I'm so glad you asked. Just as obedience is its own reward, disobedience is its own punishment. God has made a world in which evil may seem to flourish for a time, but it's also a world in which evil eventually collapses in on itself. And what do I mean by that? I'll give you some examples from just kind of life, and then we'll look to the text for more. The Bible repeatedly warns us against and condemns greed. Jesus says, look out, be careful. Like, watch out for any form of greed. R r greed is, is repeatedly condemned. And what are the consequences for greed? The consequences for greed are not that God is going to like strike you with a lightning bolt. The consequence for greed is that there's never enough. The consequence for greed is that you're always looking for more. The consequence for greed is you can never be satisfied. You can be happy or you can be greedy, but you cannot be both and choose wisely. Right? The consequence for greed is built into itself. You can never have a full life if you're greedy because a life built on consumption can never be full. It collapses in on itself. Or the Bible repeatedly holds up the value of honesty and integrity. And with that, it condemns dishonesty. Why? What are the consequences for dishonesty? Number one, and we're going to talk more about this in a minute, the truth will find you out. Evil you are hiding will eventually find you out. 
And then second, until evil finds you out, you have to live every moment of your life afraid that the truth is going to find you out. And that is a heavy burden to carry. And then so many other examples are just, they're so obvious, they're hardly worth saying. They're just self-evident. Like I've never had somebody come up to me and say, gosh, you know, Brian, I'm trying out this jealousy thing. It's working out great. Like my relationships are better. I'm happier, freer, more content. Like, no. Like, why does God warn us against envy? Because it destroys us. Because it destroys us. And in Habakkuk chapter 2, the point that God is making to Habakkuk is that evil will eventually collapse in on itself. God begins to explain in this passage that the destruction of the Babylonians is assured. There are broken and wicked people that are eventually going to taste the inevitable, non-random consequences of their wickedness. And as we walk through their wicked deeds, we need to be careful. Because it's easy to look at a text like the one we're going to look at today and come away with the conclusion that the Babylonians were really, really bad. And they were. But it's really easy to say, okay, well this warmongering, wicked, pagan people that lived 2,500 or so years ago, half a world away, they were really bad, but I'm not sure, like, I am definitely not like them. I am not out conquering and pillaging and enslaving. Like, that's not a a live temptation in my life. So I'm not really sure what a text like this has to do, what it has to say to me as a civilized 21st century American. But as I think about the text we're going to look at, I think about the words of Jesus who would say these things like, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother or sister has already committed murder in his heart. That Jesus would say to his audience, listen, you're not out doing these evil deeds, but make no mistake about it, the seeds of that sort of wickedness are in your heart. And you need to pay attention to what's going on in your heart. Because if you and I, if we don't pay attention to what's in here, Jesus knows this, that eventually it manifests itself into wickedness out there. And it's so funny to me. You hear, you hear this, you hear this saying that, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I just wonder sometimes if the reason that you and I aren't more corrupt, it's not that we're these civilized, pure-hearted people. It's just that we don't have that much power. <laughs> Think of you, some of you may take a minute to get that. But we just don't have that much power. And if we had more power, we would be more corrupt. So, so it would be a mistake to just say, oh, well, there's that evil, there's that wickedness out there, but that's not, that's not who I am. I'm not doing those things. Or I think about this quote from the Russian novelist Alexander Zolzhenitsyn, who put it this way in his book, The Gulag Archipelago. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. If only, he says, if only... There were like a, there were you know good guys and bad guys and there were bad guys and we were able to tell who the bad guys or gals were. Maybe we could have them you know wear a B on their chest or something so they're easily identifiable. And we just round up all the bad guys, put them in the bad guy place, and let them steal and fight and say mean things about each other and break the law. Let them all sort of do that together, and then the rest of us good guys can just be happy and harmonious. <laughs> he says, if only it were that simple. But then he goes on. He says, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. 
wickedness is not just out there. It's in here. (laughs) And Pastor Lance alluded to this a few weeks ago, and I thought it was so funny. How he said, we all agree there are bad guys in the world. We just don't think we're one of them. Like, no, I've never had somebody come to me and say, gosh, I'm in the middle of this terrible conflict and I'm the problem. I am behaving so badly. I need to change. No one ever comes to me and says that, right? Or, or Lance made the reference to, to court cases. How, how 100% of the time, the people that are coming to him telling him they're going to court, 100% of the time, they're the good guys. No one ever comes and says, I'm going to court this week and I need to lose because I have wicked intentions. No one ever says that, right? But the line dividing good and evil, we're not always the good guys and the bad guys aren't always out there. The line dividing good and evil exists right here in our hearts. So we need to keep that in mind as we're looking through this text. So here we go. There was your long introduction. Now on to the short sermon. Verse 5, chapter 2. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. It is widely known that the ancient Babylonians had a bit of a drinking problem. In fact, in Daniel chapter 5, Babylon was conquered by the Medes and the Persians while its leaders were drinking to excess at a grand banquet. If your whole civilization is destroyed because your leaders are drunk at the time when the bad guys come, that is a real problem. Like, that is like you need help at that point, right? And listen, this is, this is not a teaching about a full kind of theology of alcohol and, and all of that stuff. We don't have time to get into it. But I just want to say this. Wherever you land on the issue of how appropriate the moderate consumption of alcohol by people of age is, wherever you land on that issue, may we all agree that alcohol is to be handled with extraordinary care and caution. Extraordinary care and caution. And if your consumption of alcohol is worrying to your friends and family, if your consumption of alcohol is worrying to those closest to you, or it is affecting your work life, that is not something to ignore. That is something to look at. That is something to put resources behind. That is something to take very, very seriously. It goes on. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is, he, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Babylon was a nation consumed by greed. And its leaders only wanted more, more nations to conquer, more people to enslave and control, more, more, more all the time. And the ancient belief was that death or the grave or Sheol was never satisfied, was always wanting to consume more and more and more. That's why people kept dying, because the grave is never satisfied. It wants more and more and more. And that is, and Babylon is compared to death in its desire to claim more as its own. And therein we see the futility of greed. Once again, there's never enough. There's never enough. Verse six, shall not all these take up their taunt against him. And we said last week, him, even though it's first person singular, or excuse me, third person singular refers to all of Babylon. Shall we not take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? Won't there be a time, this is important, won't there be a time, God says, when Babylon will get theirs? Won't there be a time when all that Babylon, the, all the people that Babylon has conquered and all the people that they have kind of subjugated, won't there be a time when they band together and they stand up to the bully? God says, yes. There absolutely will be a time when that happens. There will be a time when the music stops and the natural 
consequences of evil will be felt. Eventually, the futility of evil will be made known because just as obedience is its own reward, evil plots its own destruction. I want to bring this into the 21st century for a second. I shared this story once several years ago that I celebrated my 30th birthday by serving on a jury because I know how to have a good time. And it's the only time in my life I've ever served on a jury. And I remember on the third day of this trial, I think it actually was on my birthday, the assistant DA introduced into evidence a series of text messages. And this was a trial for the traffic, for the trafficking of stolen property. And it was a very serious charge because the stolen property involved was very expensive, very valuable. And the, pro- the, the prosecutor, the DA, entered into evidence these text messages. And the text messages were between the defendant and somebody else. And in those text messages, the defendant basically said, I am on my way to your house to get the stolen property. And when I am there, I will then take it and go somewhere else with it. He may as well have said, when do we start the trafficking of the stolen property? (laughs) And when I heard that, I had two thoughts. My first thought was, why are we hearing about this on day three? We could have saved ourselves a lot of time. (laughs) The second thing, and this has stuck with me all these years, is I thought, I'll bet you when that person was typing out that text message, he didn't think in a thousand years that it would get read in open court. But here we are. Your evil will find you out. Your dishonesty will find you out. Jesus says, What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed from the housetops. Evil we are hiding will find us out. And that's true. I look around at our culture today. I see movements like hashtag me too. I see movements like hashtag church too. I see movements of historically oppressed and marginalized people rising up. I look at celebrities, even ministry pastor celebrities, whose crimes are being brought into the light. And it seems to me that we have a really long way to go still as a society, but it seems to me that slowly but surely our world is becoming safer for victims and less safe for those who would seek to victimize. It is becoming more safe for the oppressed and less safe for the oppressor. It is becoming safer for victims to tell their stories and justice is coming for those who would seek to use their power or their celebrity or their money to abuse and mistreat, silence, or slander. And in Jesus' name, may that only and always increase. And may the church of Jesus Christ be a place that stands for justice. The justice that causes evil to collapse in on itself. For any of us out there who would use power to slander, for any of us out there who would use power to silence and to cover up, and to mistreat. Your evil will find you out. Your evil will find you out. And in the Habakkuk text, we see how the evil of the Babylonians will eventually be found out. And what we see in our text today are three what are called woe statements. Typically, a woe in a woe statement, there is a declaration of a wrong that is done and a pronouncement of coming judgment as a result. So, verse 6, here we go. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges, 
Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who you will make tremble? Then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. This is essentially a condemnation of Babylonian greed. They had conquered many different peoples and nations. They had taken for themselves property that was not theirs. And for that reason, it says that a day is coming when those that they have plundered will plunder them. They have set up systems that are economically unjust. They have loaded these conquered peoples down with unpayable debts. That's what this reference to pledges refers to. They have created an economic system that works for the rich and keeps the poor in poverty. And God says a day is coming. A day is coming when that will not work. A day is coming when those who you have plundered will plunder you. A day is coming. You have created spoil of so many. You have taken their things as spoil for yourselves. There's a day coming when you will be spoil for others. You will be spoil for others. And again, you and I, like, you and I are not, as far as I know, we're not out there conquering and enslaving people. None of us are like, you know, I want to create unjust economic systems that enrich me on the backs of the poor. I don't know that any of us are coming here saying this is a live issue or live temptation in my life. If it is, pay attention to that. That's not good. But for most of us, it's not. But that doesn't mean that the seeds of greed have not been sown in our hearts. So here are some just simple, simple questions for us to help identify that. What power do I have and how am I using it? What power do I have and how am I using it? Greed is not just about possessions. Greed can be about power. And if you're greedy for power, it's the same as being greedy for stuff. How much is enough? How much is enough? Whatever power you have, maybe it's power at work, maybe it's power in your family, maybe it's power on a societal level. How are you using your power? Are you using it for your own benefit? Are you using it to circumvent justice? Are you using it to keep the truth from coming to light? Or are you, like Jesus, using your power to serve rather than be served? Are you using your power to empower? Are you using your power to seek justice? Number two, where do I find myself constantly wanting more? Where do I find myself constantly wanting more? And listen, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to have nice stuff. I don't think it's wrong to have things that you just say, hey, I have this, these, these things that are of high quality and they help life work out well for me. I don't think it's wrong to have hobbies or interests where you say, I just, I like to be able to have the best stuff. Like, I don't think that's necessarily wrong. But where it becomes a problem is where we constantly want more. Where we upgrade and we're happy for 18 seconds before we want to upgrade again. Right? Where do I find myself constantly wanting more? And then those are individual questions. But this is a text, this is written to a people group. This is a condemnation of a wholesale people group. So I think there's a question for us. Where am I championing greed? I cannot say that word. Where am I championing? There we go. Greed. Where am I encouraging greed? Where am I celebrating greed? Where am I celebrating unrestrained consumption? Where am I celebrating or endorsing oppression? Questions for us to ask just to see. We may not be out there conquering and pillaging and stealing, but that doesn't mean this stuff's not in our hearts. Second, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, 
to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork to respond. This one is a little bit more difficult to state in a word or two, but broadly speaking, this is a condemnation of Babylon's over-reliance on material possessions. They had acquired and acquired and acquired for themselves. And they had built dwellings that were removed from society to create protection and safety for themselves. That is the, the nest reference there. Saying, you've created sort of this kind of fortress for yourself that is removed from the cares of the world. And you think that in that you will find security. But, the text says... You have devised shame for you in doing that, and you have cut off many peoples. In other words, this whole, this whole monument you have, this whole, the dwelling place that you have, it only exists because you have enslaved and cut off other people and forced them to build it for you. And it says the stones will cry out from the wall because you have taken stolen stones, conscripted other humans, so stolen their lives from them and forced them to build. So you feel like you have built this big, beautiful fortress for yourself as a monument to Babylonian power. It's not that. It's a monument to Babylonian injustice. The stones themselves are a testimony not to your greatness, but to your wickedness. They believed in their material prosperity they would be secure, but it is not so. But it is not so. And again, I'm guessing that stealing from your neighbors to build a greater house for yourself is not a live issue in your life. I'm guessing you're not enslaving anybody on your block for your own security. Hopefully not anyway. But there are some questions to help us identify the root heart issue. Number one, where am I using people for my own selfish gain? And the more power you have, the greater the temptation to do this will be. Where am I using people for my own selfish gain? And then, here's another one. Where am I over-relying on material possessions? Where, where am I seeking, like Babylon, in this moment? Where am I seeking salvation and security through material possessions and ownership. The Bible warns us repeatedly, 1 Timothy, I think about this, do not place your hope in the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And listen, we, as 21st century, mostly suburban Americans, it is so easy to fall into this trap of over-reliance on our material possessions, and it's so easy to hide our level of dependence. It is very easy to, to, to project an image of self-sufficiency and sort of salvation through ownership, but the whole thing is a facade. And it really doesn't take much to expose it. I mean, think about this. We are one sustained power outage away from madness. <laughs> power goes out today. By Wednesday, we are who knows what, right? Are the safety and security that we think we can find in material possessions is a facade. Our hope is not in those things. Hope that is in those things is misplaced hope. Our hope is in God and Him alone. The last one. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. 
Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Here, Babylon is condemned for their violence and their injustice. The Babylonian empire was quite literally built by the blood and sweat of enslaved peoples. The word here translated blood is literally the word for murder. I mean, Jesus himself says those who live by the sword will perish by the sword. And God is saying that a kingdom that is built on violence and injustice will eventually come to nothing. These buildings, these, these ornate buildings they have built, these, these monuments again to Babylonian power will eventually amount to nothing. And this is so, this was so important for Habakkuk and the people of Israel to understand then. And it's important for us to recognize this now. There might be moments when violent and unjust empires look impressive. There might be moments when those, when those sorts of practices seem to be working out pretty well. There might be moments when those who engage in unjust economic practices look impressive. There might be moments when those who build their lives upon deceit and slander and the mistreatment of others look impressive. But make no mistake about it. Those who seek to build their kingdoms in that sort of manner are building on sand. And they will labor merely for fire, the text says. In other words, their unjust building will one day amount to nothing. Why? Their unjust building will one day amount to nothing. Why? Verse 14. Love this verse. It's so beautiful. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That promise was hope for Israel as they faced injustice. That promise, I believe there's hope in that for us as we look out into an unjust world, as we grapple with the injustice in our own hearts, that that is our hope. A day is coming when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. A day is coming when evil and wickedness will not stand. Evil will one day collapse in on itself, but God's unshakable kingdom will stand. God's unshakable kingdom will stand. Yeah, we can clap for that. Amen. And as I have reflected on this passage this week, here's what I can't help but think about as we, as we wrap up. I said earlier, and this is so important to remember, I said earlier that it is a huge mistake to think that evil is out there. That wickedness is only out there. Evil and wickedness is only in people that aren't like us and all this other stuff. When the fact of the matter is, those things exist right here as well. And God has made it clear in His Word, His hatred for those things, not because He is hateful, but because He is so loving that He hates that which would be destructive. And God promised judgment for Babylon, and indeed that judgment did one day come. So then what are we to do 21st century Americans, if we're honest enough to realize that greed and a desire for injustice and violence and all of those things, if we're honest enough to realize those things exist in our hearts today, what are we to do? What are we to do? We are to remember that God looked upon us, that God looked upon a world of people with hearts that are broken by those things. And ultimately, instead of giving us the condemnation for the state of our hearts that we deserve, He instead sent His Son 
to the earth to show us what a life that is unencumbered by those things looks like. To show us a life of a, of a one who is unencumbered by the desire for greed, who is unencumbered by the need for violence, who has no use or interest in injustice. To show us what that looks like. And then at the end of his life, he went to the cross, not to pay for his own sins, but to pay for ours. So that we, as we do the work of, of realizing that there is brokenness and darkness in our hearts, what we can do is we can take that brokenness to the foot of the cross, knowing that Jesus has paid the penalty for it already, that Jesus has received the judgment that our brokenness deserves. And because of that, when God looks upon us, He does not see the brokenness of our hearts. He sees Christ's sinless perfection. And so we... Men and women gathered under the banner of God's grace. We as men and women gathered at the foot of the cross can allow God's spirit to transform us and purify us so that we know that the judgment we deserve has already happened and we rest only under grace. And that grace can transform our hearts like nothing else can. And that grace can turn us into people who desire to walk in obedience because we know that obedience is its own reward. We don't have to be people motivated by guilt. We don't have to be people that are looking for some spiritual extra credit because every bit of credit we could ever hope for has been given to us in Christ. We can instead be people who are so transformed by God's love for us that we seek to be people of obedience because God, in His kindness towards us has made known to us the path of life and in his presence there is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore amen amen Amen. i feel like we need to give god praise in the house today